It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh my god, the pity giver's dead. The crazy thing is, then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer! Yum. Oh my god, thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told. But a word of warning from everyone around me do not give this tape to Earl. Ah, 2022, year of the shut in, the year of the cat hermit. That's me. So, because COVID has not gone away, and because I still don't have a working vehicle, all of my human contact this year, almost all of it, I think I can count on the fingers on one hand the number of times it hasn't been through screens and the internet. Thank goodness I have cats living with me, although they break my heart sometimes too. This year alone, I lost Puck in the spring. And then at the beginning of October, I lost Olivia, and then Maria, just four days apart. Even with the rough landing I had after my emergency move in early 2020, I at least had my five cats. I was still the guy with five cats. I'm just now realizing how much of my identity was tied up in being the guy with five cats. All five are now gone, and all of them left me in about a a two-and-a-half-year span. Maria's death came out of nowhere, so I got um, a bit inadvisably spendy and splashed out for a necropsy. I was thinking back to that horrible building that all the cats and I lived in from March through October 2020. You know, the place with uh, the armies of bedbugs descending the walls at night and the place without working toilets. Um, those two things should really be reversed. It should be with working toilets and without armies of bedbugs. But I digress. The thought occurred that um, it might have something to do with that place, like maybe we had all been exposed to something. But I also wanted to make sure it wasn't something in my current place, like radon or something. So Mercutio, my new kitten, I'll uh, talk about in a bit, um, got to go in for his first checkup. Uh, a few days after Maria passed, uh, because the veterinarian strongly recommended that. It took most of October, and I finally got the results of the tests that were run on Maria. She died of a form of cancer that is not uncommon in older cats. So, it looks like there's no real villain, there's no one, nothing to blame. And you have to keep in mind, when Maria first came into my life in 2011, she was skin and bones. At that time, in 2011, I had a veterinarian all but beg me to let him put her out of her misery as a kitten because, you know, she's not going to make it. She's malnourished. There's no way she's going to make it. And I thought, no, if she passes, she's going to pass in a home where she's loved. Someone's going to be petting her. She's going to be in someone's lap. She is not going to, you know, leave this world in a veterinarian exam room. And she survived. She rallied. She actually, she overcompensated for being skin and bones. She got fat for a while. She was the original floofer poof 
every day of her life was a bonus round, and I think maybe there's a a lesson in that for all of us. It's just that she ran out of bonus rounds. The cancer was in three of her organs, and there's no way I could have detected it. She just ran out the clock on her bonus rounds. At the end of August, my kids brought me a little black kitten named Mercutio, a little black long-haired kitten. So he had a chance to hang out with Olivia and Maria and got to know them. I'm sure he picked up some pointers. And when they both died, he and I both kind of fell into a deep depression together. I guess there's something to be said for not being alone there. Um, I've been giving him lots of cuddle time, lots of play time. I think that helps both of us. He has become the thin, fuzzy black line between me and being completely alone up here. I guess I'm kind of a thick, pinkish line between him and the same. He needs one of his littermate sisters to join him up here, and I am trying to negotiate that, but it's very slow going. Mercutio was the only boy in his litter, and he was also the only black cat in his litter, so no matter which sister ends up moving in with us, they will not be twins. And then there will be two fuzzy lines between me and being completely by myself. And, you know, yes, I I do know, uh, I, I know all too well that there are vaccines. I just got my latest booster the other day, got my flu shot at exactly the same time, and I don't think I'm ever getting both of those at the same time again. Uh, the problem with me going anywhere is that I am on a budget, and anytime I go someplace, you know, it's either calling a cab or an Uber or you know, waiting for a friend to have an opening in their schedule to give me a ride somewhere. And things don't always line up. So, you know, it's like, it's amazing. I live in the same town as Arcadia Retrocade, and I haven't been there in over a year. I need to rectify that soon. I definitely want to. It's just a matter of budgeting for the rides. I am uh, budgeting for at least one trip this month, uh, November 2022, and that is to go vote. Let's talk space stuff. You want to talk space stuff? I want to talk space stuff because so much has happened. Since the last time I did one of these podcasts, um, JWST was launched, for example, on Christmas Day of 2021, and it um, took its sweet time getting to its Lagrange point and just unwrapped itself like the Christmas present that it was. The pictures so far have been amazing, and... I am sure that the data being collected so far, because that's the real bounty from this, is equally amazing. I I look forward to hearing about this stuff for years. The Juno space probe recently did a close flyby of Europa with some amazing pictures, but again, and kind of like Juno's earlier pass by Ganymede, the pictures are almost incidental compared to the data gathered by the other instruments. And that really applies to Juno's Jupiter mission as a whole. The pictures are great. 
but the real jazz is being played by the other detectors and instruments on the spacecraft, and you know they are producing some mind-blowing results. On Mars, the InSight lander is most likely getting ready to suffer death by dust storm. There is a large dust storm approaching its landing site, and JPL is predicting that it will not be able to generate power enough to keep itself active through that storm. Now, there is one last cool thing from InSight, though, and it's not just from InSight, but also from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. On Christmas Eve of last year, so a day before JWST launched, there was a an impact on Mars. Um, a meteoroid that generated a quake that I think registered as a scale 4 Mars quake, which is yeah, that's fairly significant. And you also have to keep in mind that part of that is because there's barely an atmosphere to slow anything down. Now, we have to account for it when trying to land something on Mars, but something coming in that cannot slow itself down, oh yeah, it's just going to plow right through the thin atmosphere. And as Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter found out, it left a crater. Now, this showed up on the seismological instruments on the InSight lander, but it was also picked up as sound through other instruments on the InSight lander. Now, if you want to hear what it sounds like when something slams into Mars, it sounds something kind of like this. has been said about this, but I'm kind of concerned about the the ingenuity uh, you know, little Mars helicopter that accompanied Perseverance to the surface. Uh, there's not a lot of talk about whether or not it will survive the dust storm. I hope it does, but yeah, I think we need to be ready for the fact that it too could be wiped out by this thing because the solar panels on the blades could wind up with so much dust caked on them that there's no way for the thing to generate power anymore. And at that point, it becomes another another monument on Mars. Someone else out of bonus rounds. Now, we're still waiting for the first launch of the Space Launch System, the... Artemis mission, which thanks to Hurricane Ian, that launch got pushed back to November at the earliest because they had to roll the rocket back into the vehicle assembly building to prevent it from picking up too much damage from the storm. The scrubs have been frustrating, but you have to remember this is how things were done in the Apollo days. There were unmanned tests of the Saturn V until it was certain that the vehicle was safe to put a crew in. The Saturn V and the Apollo Command Service Module. 
In hindsight, uh, putting people aboard the very first shuttle launch was a bit crazy and very much the outlier compared to how every other crewed space vehicle has been flown, even including things like the Dragon and the Blue Origin capsule. There's a new documentary coming on November 23rd on Amazon Prime called Goodnight Oppie. It basically sums up the entire Mars Exploration Rover program, which is now concluded. You know, the Spirit and Opportunity Rovers, which, if you recall, were the middle step between the Sojourner Rover as a tech demo in the 90s and the current rover's Curiosity and Perseverance. Goodnight Oppie looks kind of promising. I hope there is something similar in the works for the Cassini mission now that it is over, and honestly, if I had any say in it, I would want a Cassini documentary to be done by Emma Reynolds, the Irish filmmaker who graced us with the definitive Voyager documentary, The Farthest, partly because she understood that the real story behind the robotic mission is the people who built and operated the robot, and the people who were awaiting the data to be sent back to them so they could interpret it. And partly because Cassini was kind of the last hurrah of the Grand Tour, the much grander original mission plan that was whittled down in the late 60s until Voyager was all that was left. We were lucky that we got Galileo as a second round and Cassini as a third, fulfilling at least some of the bigger Grand Tour objectives that Congress had sliced off in budget talks, you know, in the years leading up to the approval of the Voyager missions in 1972. So, the Grand Tour still kind of happened in a piecemeal fashion. And come to think of it, we've never really gotten a definitive documentary on the Galileo mission to Jupiter and its moons. Because there's a story too, but it's a story for another time and another podcast. Wouldn't a podcast tracing the human stories behind the various uncrewed missions down through the years, complete with interviews and stuff. Wouldn't that be cool? Someone should get on that. Because your earliest missions, the people who worked on those, we're losing them. The stories behind those missions are passing out of living memory, and they really should be told. My big problem is I have more ideas for podcasts than I have time to put together podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, if you're a member or even just an avid fan of the Planetary Society... You know who Matt Kaplan is. He has been the host of the Society's radio show, Planetary Radio, for more than 20 years, and he is preparing to retire. This summer, the Planetary Society ran a job listing for that position, host and producer of Planetary Radio. And I saw that, and I knew I had to put in for it. Not just that it would be a bucket list job, but, I mean, you've been sitting here for how many minutes listening to me go on and on about this stuff? I don't have a degree in astronomy or astrophysics or anything at all. Actually, I don't have a degree. I probably have a degree or two worth of experience in telling stories, though. Radio, TV, writing, I've done it. I continue to do it. And I thought, surely I am the person for this job. At the same time, I also knew that the gaping void where most other people putting in for the job would have some kind of degree, if not an actual doctorate, was going to work against me. And I've been the persistent, persnickety writer who keeps slipping real-life space history topics into the Sci-Fi 5 podcast, sometimes with the thinnest possible justification for including those topics in a Sci-Fi podcast. So I sent those shows as my samples. All of them were written by me, I was the voice on some of them, and in some cases, 
people like Gates McFadden were the voices on them, which is kind of cool. And if you don't know who this weird guy from Arkansas with all those cats is, surely you know who Gates is, right? I even had a letter of recommendation from Rod Roddenberry, which may actually be the real lasting thing I got out of the attempt to apply for this position at the Planetary Society, because I didn't get the job. I never even got a call back, an interview. In the middle of September, I got a boilerplate, thanks for putting in for it, but it's not you, email. Which is more than you get from a lot of employers these days, still. A big sore point with me, so hey, I'm happy they at least got back to me. They have since announced that the new host is someone promoted from within, someone who is already at the Planetary Society, and that's cool. I'm still here if they need some help. I will say that, and I have been working since the summer of 1989, this was the first time I have ever had a relationship with an employer that was comfortable enough for me to ask for and get a letter of recommendation from my current employer. Most places I've worked, if you asked for that, you would get a snarky answer like, oh, you're looking? Well, hey, let's free up your entire schedule so you can look harder. The door marked exit is right there. And, you know, there is something space-related that does give me hope. I mean, a lot of space-related things give me hope, but consider this. Despite Russia's attempts to annex Ukraine, which I sincerely hope continue to fail spectacularly, the American-Russian partnership that is the International Space Station has continued unimpeded, and we need it to. We need as many people to go up there as possible and see the world as it really is without borders. It puts me in mind of a famous or, you know, perhaps infamous quote from Apollo 15 astronaut Ed Mitchell on the subject of going to space and seeing the Earth that way. Here's what Ed Mitchell had to say. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck, drag him a quarter of a million miles out, and say, Look at that, you son of a... The problem, both domestically and abroad, is that we have leaders, or people who want to be leaders in the world, who would look at the Earth from that distance and say, It's mine. All mine. You have to imagine I'm rubbing my hands together when I say that. Now, those are the sons of b****s that you drag a quarter of a million miles out and you just leave them there with a sack lunch and an oxygen tank. Good luck. Let them be what Depeche Mode sang about way back when, a satellite of hate. Population one. And then the rest of us can get back to the business of understanding that society is a highly interconnected thing, and the mine-all-mine people are a threat to everything and everyone else. Something of which we now get daily reminders of on Twitter. I guess the really good thing about the new owner of Twitter is he can book his own flight to a quarter million miles out. This is normally the part of the show where we talk about the main topic. And I haven't really got one. 
I know that sounds like really crappy podcast prep there, but this year has been about work for me. Work, seeing my kids, trying to keep cats alive, trying to keep me alive. Sometimes the work and the tantalizing possibility of seeing the kids again soon, and taking care of the cats, that's what keeps me around. Take away those three things, I'm not sure why you still need me for anything. This year, however, I have accomplished one major goal, and that is writing the ship that is the logbook. For the past couple of years, my website has been in kind of sorry shape. It really seemed to have exceeded the ability for a single server to host it. Early in the year, I contacted DreamHost about this, and DreamHost has hosted the site since... I'm trying to remember what year it was. 2012, I think? It's It's been a while. Their immediate suggestion was moving from shared hosting to dedicated hosting, which was something that would take a roughly $140 annual hosting bill and turn it into a $140 monthly hosting bill. I held a kind of a pledge drive early this year to try to see if that would even be possible. Not only did my loyal Patreon peeps step up to the challenge, but Rockford J stepped up with a donation that bought me about six months to find a solution. And it turns out the solution was getting the hell away from DreamHost because dedicated hosting did not solve the problem. Their tech support is a shadow of what it once was. You contact them saying, I have a problem, and you get someone from the sales department trying to upsell you to dedicated hosting, but what you don't get is a network engineer who looks at things and says, oh, here's why this is happening, and this is what's causing your problem, here's how to fix it. I started getting the impression they still have plentiful sales staff on hand promising to hang the moon for people without even the slightest inkling if they had, from a network engineering perspective, what it would take to hang that moon. And suddenly you're back to wanting to drag people a quarter of a million miles away from Earth, which is kind of a bad look if you do it too often. People start to notice. I have to imagine there's some paperwork involved. So anyway, I decided to chance it on an experiment, splitting the site in half. Thelogbook.com was a cluster of about a dozen different installs of WordPress, each with its own database, all requiring server resources. I could see where perhaps that might be causing a problem. I consolidated three of those databases, basically all of the parts of the site that reviewed things like books and music and merch. I crammed all of those into one database, bought a separate domain for it, and that's the logbook.media. I also moved Phosphor.Fossils over there, as well as Pop Culture Retrorama, so there is now a grand total of only three WordPress installs on that server. I merged the dormant podcasts into the main review section, eliminating three more WordPresses, so lightening the load on the part of the site that was still hosted at DreamHost. So with all of that successfully moved, and to an entirely different hosting service, Bluehost, surely this would reduce the load on the main site and fix things, right? <laughs> no, the logbook.com still sucked. So I had to make some hard choices. First off, the databases for the current podcasts that are still going, this one, Retrogram Select Game, were merged into the main menu database. Three more WordPresses eliminated. Did that help? No. That's when I just opened a second Bluehost account and moved the whole damn site over there, and lo and behold, that solved all problems. Well, it solved most problems. I, I don't think anything in life really solves all problems. There was a major casualty, and that was the original forums. 
The forums had been going for something like 14 years, and I tried everything I could to transfer them to the new server, but the transfer wouldn't take. I archived the database so it wouldn't be completely lost, in the hopes that I could come up with the fix at a later date. It's sort of like that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where they find 20th century people frozen just before they would have died, in the hopes that their ailments could be cured in the future. Except that... uh, the original forum database is still frozen in that satellite somewhere out there. No, it's on my hard drive, actually, and it's on a thumb drive as well. And I just I don't know what I can do with it to revive the forums. But that's when I remembered that I had started a Discord for the logbook many months before that, which had gone virtually unused. So I nuked what was in it, set up channels and subtopics to kind of approximate the topic areas of the original forums, and invited folks in. The original forum members, Patreon patrons, a few other folks. Not everyone who was in the original forums has chosen to return, and I get it. Losing something like that and showing up to find a blank slate, its uh, I understand where that's discouraging, and it's not a great thing to wake up to. I, I do get it. But what has sprung up in place of the old forums is kind of a neat little community. Friends and supporters of the site, along with some invited guests. And it's really neat. It's a really positive little refuge away from the crap fest that is social media right now. And I hope to keep it that way. I've even put Nominal Bot back to work. Nominal. Oh, there he is. Uh, he's on the Discord announcing whenever new articles are posted, new YouTube videos, even new items in the store. I've been playing with the possibility of doing the occasional watch party, which is something that we used to do on the Logbook's Facebook page before Facebook eliminated that capability some time back. So there are all kinds of possibilities. And now that the site... Well, now it's two sites, isn't it? There's two of them. This is getting out of hand. And now that it's working again, I have felt encouraged to resume putting new content out there. The various review sections have been frozen in amber since 2020, or in some cases 2017, before the whole move to Utah thing suddenly demanded all of my attention. There are new music and soundtrack reviews, new book reviews, some new merch reviews, new Phosphor.Fossils articles, even some new stuff in the episode guides. I'm still trying to work out how pop culture retro-rama figures into all of this, or if it just remains an archives section for now. And right now, the site is back to the early days of me being the only person writing new stuff for it. But maybe in the end, that is what the logbook is meant to be. It's me in digital form. It's a backup copy of my brain. That's okay. So far, I'm very impressed with Bluehost, and in case anyone's wondering, what splitting the site in two and moving all of it to two different accounts on a new hosting service translates to in dollars is no more monthly charge of 140 bucks. There are some monthly charges that are much more manageable within what's coming in via Patreon, and through eBay and Amazon affiliations, through t-shirt sales at Redbubble, and through sales of my own books at Amazon. Every August from here on out, there will be one fairly large charge to renew everything, but even that is more manageable than how things were shaping up at DreamHost, where they seem to just want to charge me a lot more for the same inept service. I can just sit on what comes in throughout the year, and that'll take care of the big annual charge. It's good to have it all working again. It's good to be back. It's neat to be exploring how it all integrates with the YouTube videos and the Discord, 
as if it's all somehow one big well-oiled machine. I have to be honest, I have missed it terribly. You know what else I've missed? This word from our sponsors. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. John Billingsley, Phil Flox. Join dozens of Star Trek celebrities for eight hours of interviews, panels, performances, and general Trek wallow, all in support of the Hollywood Food Coalition, ofoco.org. Check us out, helping people in need for almost 40 years. Trek Talks 2 kicks off 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, January 14, 2023. Stay hep at trektalks.net. Live long and mark your calendars. So it's time to talk media stuff. What have I been watching, listening to, reading, etc., etc.? Let's talk about the Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. I almost wasn't able to get it. I was trying to get the Complete Adventure Blu-ray package, which is a three-disc box set with plenty of goodies, both on the discs and included with them, like reproductions of bumper stickers and other Star Trek fandom items from the 1970s, So these are specimens of stuff that I remember from my own younger days of discovering Star Trek because the motion picture is really where my ongoing Star Trek fandom begins, you know, and it's not just this thing that's on TV that I'm occasionally aware of, it's something that I'm now following. Anyway, I kept seeing social media posts about people ordering this from Amazon and their box sets arrived looking like they had been dragged behind a truck. And, oh, hey, I placed my order from Amazon, too. I waited. I waited some more. The delivery date kept moving. Finally, they canceled the order. They canceled it because they didn't have stock to fulfill it with. I kind of panicked a bit, and then the craziest idea occurred to me. Okay, so I'm stuck at home all the time. You know how I get groceries? Instacart. Instacart delivers, at least in my neck of the woods from Best Buy. Now that's dangerous, dangerous knowledge. Check the local inventory on the Best Buy website. Did they have a copy? Yes, in fact, they had several. Could I pay to have some poor soul bring me one of them? Yes, yes I could. And what's more, since it was hand-delivered from across town, it didn't look like a box set that had been dragged a quarter of a million miles away from Earth. The box set is really nice, though. It's not just the feelies and the packaging. You get three discs. One has the newly redone 
4K assembly of the Director's Edition on Blu-ray, which uh, we'll talk about why I have that in a moment when I don't even have a 4K TV. We'll, we'll get back to that. One standard Blu-ray with the original theatrical version and the extended TV home video version that so many of us remember from the VHS days from repeated exposure. And a third disc with bonus features that there are newly produced documentaries and there are bonus features and documentaries all the way back to the 2001 DVD version of the Director's Edition. Now, I know everyone's going on about how good the Director's Edition looks in its new 4K form, which they had to re-render. You know, everything that was newly rendered as CGI for the 2001 DVD release had to be completely redone because that was strictly a DVD release. It was not high definition. So all that work had to be done all over again. But for me, the biggest difference is in how it sounds. Nearly every line in the original movie was ADR'd. It was redubbed after production because the bridge was filled with screens that were all rear-projected film loops. There is no way the original sound was going to be usable from that, and so everyone had to dub every line. And as a result, you know, it has sounded for more than 30, more than 40 years, actually. More than 30 years, yeah, this movie is now over 40 years old, it has sounded like all the dialogue was just pasted on top of the sound mix. And now they've made it sound like it's part of the sound mix. It's very nicely done. My favorite bonus feature, now this is irony for you, someone cleaned up and rescanned those hand-animated film loops from the bridge monitors that were supposed to pass for high-tech computer graphics in 1979, so, you know, they're kind of like the world's first screensavers, but they're also you know, sort of like the world's first Okudagrams. You know, way before Mike Okuda was doing, uh, you know, the computer interface graphics for Star Trek The Next Generation and everything that followed, this was the look of computer interfaces in the universe of Star Trek. And it very heavily informs how they are doing the graphics on Star Trek Strange New Worlds now. So it's kind of funny that, you know, I like the I like the new sound mix because they had to fix this dubbing problem because all of these film projectors were cranking behind every monitor on the bridge. But what's my favorite bonus feature? It's those film loops that those projectors were showing. Um, Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen. This is apparently the last of the Doctor Who animated versions of Lost black and white 1960 stories, at least for now. There were only three stories left in Patrick Troughton's era that required this treatment. Uh, one four-parter and two other six-parters, and then they could have moved on to the missing stories from the Hartnell era. But due to BBC America pulling its side of the funding out from under the animated reconstructions, no more work is being done on anything along those lines following this release. The Blu-ray has some nice features on it, including a documentary shot at the original outdoor filming location, which is, you know, a, a national park in Wales. And that documentary is just gorgeous to look at. It's very, very well-directed in its own right. I'm going to miss these releases. I thought they were a fun way to make some of the missing shows a whole new thing for everyone again, even the seasoned fans who have listened to the audio the surviving audio of them, you know, half a dozen times each. 
and then you know now we have uh you know these nicely animated versions some of them, the animation was better than others um I'm not going to go into a rant about the Web of Fear Part 3. It's kind of sad that animated classic Doctor Who seems to be at a dead standstill for now. Werewolf by Night on Disney+. Plus. So, this was an interesting little, uh, little Marvel piece. It was a one-off. There's no series behind it. I mean, there could be in the future, I suppose, depending on the numbers. But... It was just an interesting little show. Very, very interesting look. Black and white with spot color, which is you know, kind of... I mean, it's easier to do in the digital age, but that, that doesn't mean it's just a breeze, because let me tell you, from having done something very similar in the in the age of analog for a TV project I worked on once, black and white with spot color is never, ever easy. I was also kind of surprised it's a bit more violent and sweary than a lot of the Disney Plus Marvel original series. And okay, let me just say I'm, you know, I'm not being prudish. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be allowed to venture into that territory. But if this was okay for Disney Plus, why were they editing the ex-Netflix shows like Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage when they moved over to Disney+, Plus, because I've heard word of uh, some editing going on there. So it makes me wonder, is that happening for content reasons? Or are we slicing and dicing and retconning the MCU to fit these in better? Because, of course, we have Charlie Cox coming back as Daredevil in a new series next year, it may pick up where the Netflix series left off. It also looks like it might be kind of its own piece. Difficult to tell. Uh, Werewolf by Night was directed by Michael Gacchino, and he is turning into an audiovisual auteur. We know Michael mainly as a composer from things like Alias and Lost and Rogue One and the three Star Trek films produced by J.J. Abrams and plenty of other things. I can really think of only one other director who also scores their own stuff, and that's John Carpenter. So, Michael Cicchino venturing into uh, directing, he's not in bad company there. I, I think he is one to keep an eye out on because Werewolf by Night was a lot of fun. I have been enjoying Mystery Science Theater 3000 Season 13 via the Gizmoplex. Earlier this year, I signed up for the Digital Collection membership tier of the new Mystery Science Theater 3000 on gizmoplex.com. This lets you stream brand new stuff, and after the new stuff has been out for a couple of weeks, you can download your own copy, complete with subtitles, which, of course, I've been dropping into my Plex server and watching at my leisure, because who doesn't want to watch Dr. Mordred with Jeffrey Combs multiple times with robot commentary? The last time the kids were up here, uh, we watched Dr. Mordred and we watched uh, Gamera vs. Jiger, and we laughed our butts off. It is not the cheapest streaming service I have signed up for. 
and it does have to be paid in full up front. But the thing I like about the Gizmoplex subscription is that I know my subscription is supporting more of a scrappy underdog operation rather than another monolithic studio-run operation. So, you know, I'm a lot closer to being these guys <laughs> than I am to being Disney+. Plus. For additional fees, I could stream any other MST3K episode ever made, at least going back to the cable days. But I'm really there for the new stuff, and I'm enjoying it tremendously. And I hope at least one or two dollars of that subscription fee goes toward buying Jeffrey Combs a, a chalupa or a chupacabra or a capybara or something. Dr. Mordred is a pain-peelingly stupid movie. But hey, even Wei Yun has got to pay the mortgage, yo. So, some other Blu-ray arrivals. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Service... Flying Circus. You're going to find out why I made that mistake. Monty Python's Flying Circus and a 1969 British series called The Owl Service, both out on Blu-ray from Network, which is a publisher in the UK, but they ship stateside. I almost feel guilty about this purchase. Let me explain that. Network is a UK outfit that routinely turns out stuff I want to buy, and they had a big sale on TV shows that had been upgraded to high def. I looked at what was included on the sale and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted. I could pick up all of Monty Python. But then the pound crashed because, well, you know, Liz Truss was the prime minister that week. So suddenly the exchange rate was very much in my favor. And I thought, you know what? Let's do it. It may, it may make me a terrible opportunistic person, but let's do it. So I completed my collection of Monty Python's Flying Surf Circus on Blu-ray. And even though it wasn't on sale because it was a new release, I also picked up the Blu-ray of The Owl Service, not The Owl Circus. I'm going to get this right at some point, possibly even during this show. I picked those up at the same time. I think The Owl Service, I don't think that has ever been shown in the U.S. It was originally filmed in 1969 with the intention of being one of the first shows to go out in color on ITV. But then ITV backpedaled and showed it in black and white instead. And it was not seen in color until a repeat in 1978. It's a weird show. It's not really a kid's show, but it's something for the older teens because there is a complicated relationship or two at the center of it, as well as something bordering on supernatural that's connected to an old Welsh legend. It's a very strange show, and I'm almost certainly failing to describe it coherently. I mean, let's face it, I've been struggling to say service and circus where I should and not where I shouldn't, and failing to do that spectacularly, too. This is one of those things you kind of have to see for yourself. Since it was all shot on film, the Blu-ray looks fantastic. Now, it was still rescanned from old film stock, and that shows a bit. But other than the aspect ratio, there's not a lot to give away that this is something that originated on TV, because the directorial style and the complexity, and in a few places the maturity of the story, um, really don't make it seem like something you would have seen on TV in 1969. As for Monty Python, I'm not sure what I can say there that hasn't been said. Bits of it hold up beautifully, bits of it have not aged well, 
Most of it still makes me laugh. And there are bonus features I have never seen before. There are corporate films that the Python performers were hired to do, stuff that was for internal use and not really ever intended to be seen by the public. It's kind of a weird peek into what they did during their off-season to you know, bring home some money. Uh, you know, I, I was going to joke that they were bringing home the bacon bits, but this stuff probably paid better than what the BBC was paying them. Uh, the upscaled HD is quite nice. The, the neat thing about PAL video, which is the, uh, the videotape format and the broadcast format that was used in the UK, but not used here, is that as opposed to the NTSC video standard we had in North America, which was 480 lines tall, PAL video was 576 lines tall. So you can gracefully upscale PAL video to high definition, which is why you're also seeing all of these box sets of classic seasons of Doctor Who come out on Blu-ray, which are also fantastic. I highly recommend those. Um, I'm behind on them, but I highly recommend them from what I've seen. The, uh, the Terry Gilliam animations done on film on Monty Python, uh, they are much sharper, and you see stuff you have never seen before. At least, I see stuff I've never seen before. So, you know, highly, highly recommend the experience of seeing Monty Python's Flying Circus in HD. Now let's veer rather randomly back to Marvel and Disney Plus and talk about She-Hulk. It's kind of amazing that every Marvel streaming series that Disney Plus rolls out is my favorite one so far. And that was, that was quite a feat, given that Moon Knight had a talking hippo in it. I mean, you talk about a show that seems like it was squarely aimed at the hippo-loving Earl demographic, which is very, very desirable demographic, I should add. Um, yeah, how are they going to beat that one? Well, She-Hulk. She-Hulk was delightful, the whole season of it. And... I am by no means a connoisseur of every issue of the original comics, but anyone complaining about the tone of the series obviously never picked up any of the books, and I thought it was absolutely delicious that the show incorporated some of that internet complaining into its narrative and took it on like an oncoming truck. I laughed out loud so many times during this show, so it does my heart good to hear that season two is already being discussed. Pay the writers, the directors, and the whole cast whatever it's worth to get them all back for Season 2, because we need more She-Hulk in our lives. Even if you are not steeped in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this show was a lot of fun. Also on Disney+, Plus, actually still in progress as I record this podcast, the Star Wars series Andor. Apparently, according to reports, it is struggling to find its audience. It's not picking up as many viewers as The Mandalorian or The Book of Boba Fett. Then again, it's telling a nuanced story that doesn't have to paper over its narrative cracks with thick piles of Easter eggs and fan service. I get a big Blake 7 vibe from some episodes of Andor, and I am definitely a guy that you can win over with a big Blake 7 vibe. That and Talking Hippos, I mean, it really does not take much to keep me happy. Andor really addresses head-on the thing that I've often said prevents Blake 7 
from ever being remade. Your heroes are basically considered terrorists by the state, which lands a bit awkwardly in a world where we've waged an undefined war on terror without specific goals for, well, how many years so far in this century? Oh yeah, all of them. So now we're halfway through season one as I write this, with what I gather is a second and final season waiting to happen, and I hope that Andor gets that second season and that we continue to dwell in that murky, discomforting gray area because it's really engrossing. Something else that I thought was engrossing, uh, other people's mileage, of course, varies, the Doctor Who Centenary Special is celebrating not 100 years of Doctor Who, but 100 years of the BBC. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, it was plenty fast, plenty furious. Maybe just a little bit of check your brain at the door and try to keep up with it. I could see someone complaining that there's more splash and spectacle than there is substance here, but I'm not sure I completely agree with that. Now, I've made the joke that I think the process of writing this episode started by dumping a random assortment of Doctor Who action figures on a table and saying, right, who have we got then? It's really an interesting idea that Unit would look up past companions of the Doctor and recruit them. If you think about it, that's got to be a lot easier than taking, say, an Osgood who's never met the Doctor before and trying to bring her up to speed on what Unit does. You think back to the 50th anniversary special, Osgood is obviously brilliant. Does that mean that she has any inkling of how to handle Zygon suddenly invading? Eh, not really. And here's the thing. Earlier in the year, I was wondering why they made the return of Ace and Tegan public as early as they did in the trailer shown after Legend of the Sea Devils, which was the spring special. I started to suspect that the reveal in question was providing cover for other surprises that were not going to be announced in advance, and I wasn't wrong. And that's all I'm going to say there, just in case you haven't seen it. Overall, it was just a lot of fun. I'm going to miss Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor, and let me just say, the period of time between 2017 and now has been a very tiring time to watch Doctor Who fandom dogpile on the show's star and showrunner. It reminds me a lot of the worst excesses of late 80s fandom, where you had really deplorable fanzines like Doctor Who Bulletin waging their own personal war on the people involved in making the show. You'd think they would have found something that they liked watching instead, like, you know, the Tripods or Star Cops or something. But no, they dogpiled those shows, too, for the heinous crime of not being Doctor Who. And no, I'm not kidding. Any other sci-fi on the BBC was instantly panned by some of these fanzines because they felt it must be diverting funds and resources away from Doctor Who. And before you know it, it sounds like somewhere out there is a fanzine editor who's gone off his meds. Now, amplify that kind of noise to the magnitude of the internet, and yeah, you, you guessed it, we're back to dragging people a quarter of a million miles out into space, where some of these folks need to be. Really, further than a quarter of a million miles out would be would be fine, too. I don't want, you know, this layer of space junk to set up at the quarter-million-mile mark. Um, there's there's all kinds of room out there. This was a nice note for the 13th Doctor to go out on, and she will be very much missed. Uh, the fact that a lot of the action sequences were taken up by guest stars like Ace and Tegan and Kate Stewart, 
All of that was running cover for the fact that, while she wasn't necessarily showing yet, Jodie Whittaker was pregnant during filming, so you can't drop a lot of stunt work on your pregnant leading lady. You know, you can't have her do wire work where she's got to be in a harness. I really dislike hate-watching. Life is too short for it. And life's certainly too damn short to broadcast your hate-watching. Get help, please, people. So much other stuff has happened this year that I haven't even begun to weigh in on. Uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Season 3 of The Orville, Obi-Wan, The Book of Boba Fett, Moon Knight. The streaming universe is almost too much to take in sometimes. I've been doing a lot of reading, too, but you know what? Let me tell you what. This is exactly what the logbook.media is for. So rather than letting this part of the podcast get top-heavy, watch that space. So let's talk merch and goodies. The Prisoner action figures from the Wandering Planet Kickstarter. According to the latest email I got from them, these will be shipping out very soon, possibly first week of November, which maybe even by the time you hear this. The figures will be shipping to backers, and trust me, there will be an unboxing video, at least one. Wandering Planet says... They will be doing another Kickstarter in early 2023 for their next figure line, which will be in, this is what they said, something that has never had action figures before. Please, please, please be Blake 7. I would accept Red Dwarf in a pinch, but I really want Blake 7 action figures before I die. Which hopefully is not anytime soon. There are new Star Trek action figures from Playmates, Um, who also had the license to do these in the 90s, they are in the logbook.com store if you want to order your own. Now, I will say this. The only reason I'm collecting these, this new line, is because they have characters from the new series that have come along since Voyager. Voyager was the last Star Trek series for which Playmates did their 4-inch figures in the 1990s, which I collected a lot of. Enterprise figures were done by Art Asylum, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, those were 7 or 8 inch figures. And I just don't have a lot of that kind of room to display a collection. So, I would like for Playmates to, you know, if we're, if we're going to do everything, and it looks like they have access to everything, because this first wave includes characters from Discovery, uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek the next generation. So it seems like they have kind of a master license thing going on here. Um, I would like for Playmates to not only do Discovery and Prodigy and Strange New Worlds and Picard and Lower Decks, I would like for them to double back and do Enterprise as well. Now, the, why am I only begrudgingly collecting these? The new figures are five inches tall, so they're just large enough to be incompatible with the playsets and vehicles for the 4-inch figures. Why? Why would you do that? It's kind of an arbitrary decision, it seems to me. It it just makes me a little bit crazy. And, and, you know, I do realize that the answer is uh, to make you buy them all all over again, dummy. 
And, yeah, I get it, but... Jeez. I did splash out a little while back, and I got um, the Mattel Wally Pixar Spotlight figure. I got this because it looked like it was close to the scale of the Diamond Select figures of Vincent and Old Bob from the Black Hole. I thought they needed a buddy. And uh, Wally is a great figure with great accessories, but holy crap, was it a bear to open. I did a video as part of Voyages of Shelf Discovery that has a great big time jump in the middle during which I had to break out scissors, and in the process of just trying to get the figure out of its packaging, I nicked Wally and I nicked myself with the scissors. You know, just trying to get him out of those plastic zip ties, which I hate. If you watch it, you'll notice when the edit happens, I'm kind of low-level pissed off for the rest of that video, which is a bit funny in hindsight, but it's like, man, I just want to get Wally out of here. It's a neat figure. I have no regrets there. Maybe a bit larger scale than the black hole figures, but not not noticeably so. And really, it's um, it's with the black hole figures that I've photographed the Wally figure so far. So it's it's close enough for Jazz. Playmates is not the only outfit that has cranked out some Star Trek: The Next Generation figures lately. Uh, Reaction Super Seven also did some three and three quarter inch kind of old Star Wars Kenner scale uh, next generation figures. And I I got all of those, but I will be honest with you, I'm trying to wean myself off of reaction. When I became a fan of that line, they were... Well, for one thing, they were co-produced with Funko. Back before Funko was all in on the whole vinyl pop thing, which is not something I'm a big collector of. And so those figures, because they were going through Funko's distribution channels, those figures were, you know, maybe 10 bucks a pop. And then all of a sudden, once Super 7 is going it alone, after they parted ways with Funko around 2016, 2017 or so, you know, all of a sudden these 10 buck figures are 16 bucks each. Now they're 20 that being said, they did get me to come back for one figure in the past month. Vincent Price. I mean, not Vincent Price as any particular horror movie character. Just Vincent Price with a raven. Okay, uh, I'm in. Now, the weird thing is, it doesn't ship until mid-November. And I've got to take points off for that, Super 7. I mean, you've got an action figure of Vincent Price, and it's not ready to ship for Halloween docking you big points there. Now, thanks to a pre-order page going up early by mistake at Big Bad Toy Store, brace yourself. We know that Reaction is going to be doing the black hole sometime in the next few months. It may be early in the new year. Now, the character selection is going to be the same as the Diamond Selection figures, so it's just the robots. It's Old Bob, it's Vincent, it's Maximilian. So, budget accordingly. Little floaty robot buddies are coming again. And, you know, these will be three and three-quarter inch scale, so these will be uh, much smaller than the Diamond Select figures. But uh, not significantly cheaper, that's the depressing part. Barring a couple of other things that might be coming out by the end of the year that I already have on pre-order, that's it for goodies for me this year. I have had to replace monitors and a microphone and some other gear 
And, you know, I, that's, that was kind of an unexpected expenditure. The neat thing about the new monitors, though, okay, apparently now they all come with a setting for blue light filtering, which is a thing I didn't even know existed. And that is so much easier on my eyes than the random mishmash of at least 10-year-old monitors that I was using before. Speaking of things that generate light, thanks to some very affordable sale pricing lately, I've become a bit of a devoted customer of Govi Lighting. They do light ropes that you attach to the back of your TV or light tape that you're supposed to attach to the edges of baseboards and door facings and so on. And so... Yeah, the light tape, you know, actually has an adhesive backing. There's a cover layer that you peel off before you apply. And and you better be sure that that's something you're comfortable with leaving there forever. (laughs) All of it is app controllable by Bluetooth. Now, they really, really want you to pull all this stuff on your Wi-Fi router, which I am just paranoid enough from an IT security standpoint to not want to do especially since everything has a music and audio reactive mode. So, literally, every one of these light strings, light ropes, or lighting devices from Govi has microphones. So, um, sorry, I'm not putting you guys on the router. Bluetooth is just fine. This is such a small place that I live in that I can lay in bed and turn off the lights in the living room. If you have multiples of the same device, you can use group commands and tell them all to do the same lighting scheme simultaneously. And when I say lighting scheme, I mean some of these are animated. Uh, some of them are animated a little too much. Uh, there, are, there are some favorites that I've quickly fallen into using frequently, and there are others that would be great for Fremont Street in Las Vegas. Uh, I mean, they're real seizure inducers, and I just don't use them because I have no need of that. There is something called a lightning mode, which I tried out once for about 15 seconds, and then never again. There's also a programming capability for custom lighting schemes and even animated schemes that you can set up yourself that don't already exist. I'm really trying to get my head around the programming language for that, because that's that's something I would kind of like to try out. So I started the year with you know, nearly a dozen clip-on gooseneck desk lamps from Walmart. Little, you know, little seven-buck Walmart desk lamps um, attached to all of the racks in my room. And each of those had remote-controlled LED color-changing bulbs, which barely lit the room and were becoming... The lamps were becoming droopy, because, you know, gravity will still get you. It was just... It was just kind of woeful. And, you know, there was stuff above the lights that was getting no light whatsoever. Um, So at the end of the year, I have just a handful of these Govi lights. They will light the whole room as bright or as dark or as colorful as I want. Uh, They can make it look like there's a lightning storm going on in here, which I do not want. I made a light table for my dining area. The recipe for this was a cheap glass top patio table that I found in Amazon warehouse deals. The packaging was not pretty, but what was inside the packaging was just fine. And one uh, 10-foot roll of Govi light tape, 
which I affixed to the inside rim of the table beneath the glass so it shines up and through. The middle of the table has holes in the center for an umbrella, but it doesn't come with an umbrella, and there's no hole in the glass top for the umbrella, so I'm not really sure what they were thinking there. But that provides a really handy place for me to run the electrical cord down through those center holes. And you know, to have the whole thing plugged in. And the lighting scheme of the table is app-controlled. It's kind of neat. And all of, you know, the table project with the, you know, the table itself and the lights, that barely ran over 50 bucks. I was expecting I was probably going to be paying more than that just for the table. And I lucked out. So as I wait for the prisoner and more floaty robot buddies, and the first wave of Star Trek Prodigy figures supposedly coming before the end of the year. That's really where I'm concentrating my resources. Let's make what's already in here look really cool and maybe trick the eye into thinking I've got a really cool place here and I'm not in kind of a shabby duplex where the renter's insurance policy forbids me from even using the fireplace. But as always... You know, keep in mind, Wandering Planet is kick-starting a new line of figures, which I may or may not be interested in in 2023. But, just before finalizing my notes for this podcast, Big Chief Studios and Anderson Entertainment announced that they are starting the Anderson Collection of three and three-quarter inch figures. Again, that Kenner Star Wars scale. Characters from Space 1999, UFO, Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Joe 90, Stingray... There are at least two waves already in production. So, I mean, for example, we already know we're getting Commander Koenig and Alan Carter from Space 1999. We're getting Straker from UFO. I really just want the characters from the live-action shows right now, especially Space 1999. I've been (laughs) waiting my whole life for those. So those will be happening next year. And so as much as I say that I am running out of display space... You know, there's there's always a way to squeeze, oh, just one or two more in. And here's the secret for all of this stuff. I don't buy things I can't afford. I save up for things. I budget for things. I buy only the stuff that I want. And in very, very few cases do I have a full collection of anything. As flashy as it all looks under the lights, what it really is, is a modest collection displayed nicely. And that makes me happy, and kind of makes me at home in my own head, which is really important when it's just me and one floofy black kitten, and we live here alone, and we don't go anywhere. more small orders of business before signing off. The really big one is that a couple of days after this podcast drops, which means it may already be past, (laughs) it may very well be in the past, it's election day in the United States. It's the uh, 2022 midterms. We live in some pretty scary times right now. 
I love my kids. I can think of almost <laughs> you know, a near infinite list of other eras in recent history that I would rather be raising them in than this one. I really want you to think carefully about who you vote for. It's not an exaggeration to say that lives depend on it. The lives of women, the lives of minorities, the livelihood of us all. It's all in the balance. It's all up for grabs. You know me. I'm a Star Trek guy. I'm kind of hoping for a future that is better for all of us. Not just some of us, but all of us. And it really bothers me to see half of our country leaning hard in the opposite direction. A better future is there if we want to claim it, but you're not going to claim it by staying home on election day. So I strongly urge you to get out there, vote with your conscience, and do what I'm going to do and come home and eat a hell of a lot of ice cream, (laughs) because that's going to be a nerve-wracking night of election returns. Once we have survived that, on January 14th, 2023, starting at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, it is the second annual Trek Talks Telethon, benefiting the Hollywood Food Coalition, lots of Star Trek celebrities live streaming interviews, panels. It's kind of like a convention on your computer screen or your TV if if you're like me and you have a you know, decent-sized TV that's hooked up to a computer. And all of this is in support of Hollywood Food Coalition. As with the 2022 event, I will be behind the scenes pushing everyone's buttons. There's probably a better way to say that. The, the actual formal description of what I do for the Trek Talks Telethon is that I am the technical director and I am pleased to help out a second year. I'm proud to help out a second year. We raised a significant amount of money in the first year. I want to see if we can do even better this year. You can catch updates on the show, including as we confirm people who will be taking part in Trek Talks 2 Go to trektalks.net, and like I said, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, Saturday, January 14th, hey, show up and, you know, enjoy me streaming stuff from my living room that's coming from all over the place as we do our best to try to make that better future that I was just talking about a reality. It's something I'm more than happy to help out. Thank you for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you're listening to this and you haven't already joined the ranks of the Logbook's patrons and supporters, now is an excellent time to do so. Even if you could only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com 
and logbook.media and all of the related podcasts and video casts going. You could be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Icy Robots and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley. Sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You get occasional show notes and outtakes and other fun stuff. And then, of course, there is access to the Discord. If you are not a fan of Patreon, here is something cool that's kind of a recent innovation. The same patron tiers are available for ongoing memberships at ko-fi.com. You can also use coffee. That's the aforementioned ko-fi.com. If you just want to throw us a one-time donation as well. But if, for whatever reason... You know, and I understand some people have objections to how Patreon does what Patreon does. If you want to be an ongoing supporter of the logbook through ko-fi.com, it is set up for that now, and it's it's very easy to do. In fact, supporting us through that platform, there is a bot that will automatically let you into the Discord. So that's really cool. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, and even non-medical grade face masks and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Strange New World, Star Trek Prodigy, Star Trek Lower Decks, and you know, every other Star Trek series or anything else on Paramount+, Plus, you can sign up for a free week through the links on our site. If you stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook a lot. Thanks for listening as always. Don't Give This Tape to Earl is a production of thelogbook.com. Thank you.